0: starts
1: now It's important to realize that this is not a disease of old ladies, that this is a disease of young women and that it is a disease that can be ameliorated or even prevented.
0: Cardiovascular disease kills more women than all forms of cancer combined, and yet only 44% of women recognize that cardiovascular disease is their greatest health threat. Cardiovascular disease is also the number one killer of new moms and accounts for over one-third of maternal deaths. Today, I interview Dr. Wenger, who has been at the forefront of advancing patient care for the last 60-plus years. Unable to find existing studies on women's heart disease symptoms and their treatment, she decided to investigate the problem herself. Her clinical research efforts has led to critical knowledge that cardiovascular disease is this leading cause of death. For women in the U.S. And she is also the co-author of the American Heart Association's 2007 Guidelines for Cardiovascular Disease Prevention in Women. So you can see why this episode was so important to do. And I am grateful for Go Red for Women and the American Heart Association for introducing us to Dr. Nanette Wenger dr wenger it is such an honor to be here especially with you today to talk about heart health i'd always known that cardiovascular disease is the number one killer amongst women. But to be honest with you, it was just like a passive stat that I was aware of. But then as I started to interview other guests and do more research, I'm realizing just how important of a topic this is to discuss. So earlier, I had interviewed Dr. Allison McGregor, and she's an ER doctor, and she wrote the book called Sex Matters. And she also did a TED Talk on that. And there is where I learned about how so many in the medical community don't understand how heart attacks manifest differently in women than in men and you can only imagine the implications if you're having an actual heart attack and not getting properly diagnosed and then it seems further people are doing things like a woman as creating an innovation where i think it's a sports bra that you can wear that's constantly monitoring your heart health and so once i learned these nuances It hit home to me of, oh, my goodness, if this were to happen to me, I need to have this information, and I think our listeners do, too. So clearly, this is an important topic we need to cover. So why don't we first start with your background, and then we can dive into all the important topics that we want to cover today around heart health.
1: Well, my background uh, is that I'm a clinical cardiologist and a clinical trialist at the Emory University School of Medicine. Uh, where I am professor of medicine in the division of cardiology. Uh, My other titles are that I'm a consultant to the Emory Heart and Vascular Center, and I am the founding consultant to the Emory Women's Heart Center. And that's something that we are very proud of at the Emory University School of Medicine.
0: That's wonderful. Congratulations. And you were one of the original people who really started noticing the difference in heart health when it comes to women. Tell us more about that.
1: Well, you know, when I was in medical school, and actually when I was in training, heart disease was considered a man's problem. And all of the research was focused on men. This was despite the fact that every year, more women than men died of heart disease. But because it was considered a man's disease, we really had no women involved in any of the research studies. And as I began my clinical practice and saw women in the clinic and saw women on the wards and in the intensive care units, they were having heart disease. And as I reviewed the literature to see what was the best way to treat them, the data were all extrapolated from data in men. And that gave me cause for concern. I was told that there was research going on in women, but essentially I termed that bikini medicine because the research involved the areas covered by the bikini bathing suit, the breasts and the reproductive system. And the rest of the woman was totally ignored and was supposed to be identical to the data for men. And as a matter of fact, these were middle-aged Caucasian men. So I began to contact my colleagues at the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, at the American Heart Association, cardiology to say we need information about women. I had no idea whether there really would be differences, but I thought we needed information about women to be able to optimally care for women. And I was told that really is not an important issue, but I thought it was, and I persisted in it until finally the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute had a workshop and then a conference and it resulted in a New England Journal article on state of the art for which I had privileged privilege to serve as a senior author. And we talked about coronary disease in women and it was probably the first time that those two terms had been paired in a prestigious medical journal. And then of course it took off. It began to excite interest in sex and gender differences. And of course, that term sex and gender differences was really not in the general vocabulary a number of decades ago. But as we began to acquire data specific to women, we began to learn that women differ substantially from their male peers in the pathophysiology, in the prevention, in the diagnosis, in the management, and in the outcomes. So that the bottom line, if you will, is we need information specific to women to be able to treat women. And as we look at mortality statistics, until about the year 2000, the mortality in women, cardiovascular mortality was greater than that for men, even though the mortality for men was declining substantially, mortality for women was unchanged. And as we began to acquire data specific to women and these translated into changes in clinical practice, the mortality for women declined precipitously until about, oh, I expected it was 2013, 2014, for the first time, Fewer women than men died each year from cardiovascular disease. And as I've said many times on the podium, we are delighted to be in second place and we want to stay there. (laughs) But that's the good news. But there is also the bad news. Because since then, what we have seen is an increase in cardiovascular mortality, both for women and for men, perhaps more so for men. And as we examined this rather carefully by decade, we saw that among the older women, 60 plus, 70 plus, 80 plus, they still had a decline in cardiovascular mortality, but the mortality was increasing in the younger women. We are seeing younger women with lower heart health. We're seeing younger women with less awareness that cardiovascular disease is a major health problem you see about 2004 both the national heart lung and blood institute and the american heart association with their heart truth campaign and go red for women campaign specifically addressed and tackled the issue of cardiovascular awareness among women the awareness during that period increased from the mid-30s to Over 50%. And that was about as good as it got. Okay. And this awareness of risk factors, awareness of symptoms of heart attack. And since about 2009, we have lost ground. So that we're back about where we were in 2004. We see less awareness of cardiovascular risk factors in women, and particularly in younger women we see less awareness of symptoms of heart attack, and we see less attention to heart health in women, and in particular in younger women and in women of racial and ethnic minorities. So we have catch up to play and forward to go. And that essentially is the emphasis of the advisory of the American Heart Association that was recently published in circulation.
0: What strikes me in what you're saying is you mentioned decades ago there was um, increased awareness around heart attacks and how they manifest differently in women than they do men, yet now the data showing less awareness. So, why don't we talk about how they do manifest differently? Uh, in men and women, and who really is at greatest risk?
1: Women and men share the conventional risk factors: of smoking, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, sedentary lifestyle, uh, overweight, etc. But they have a differential impact for women and for men. Diabetes increases the risk far more for women than for men. Women smokers are at greater risk than men smokers. So that we see that it's it's important to address heart health and to see that there is attention to women's heart health across the lifespan. Now we must cooperate with our OBGYN colleagues in this regard, because remember that for young and apparently healthy women, often the OBGYN is their primary care physician. And, you know, the OBGYN gyn doctors are in the prevention mode. They talk about mammograms. They talk about pap smears. But we would like to encourage them to talk about women's heart health, to say, are these women heart healthy, according to the American Heart Association's Life Simple 7? If they are not heart healthy, what are their risks, and what are the ways to ameliorate their risks? But then the important feature is that Even though women and men share the conventional risk factors, there are specific risk factors that are either unique to women or that are more prominent in women. And many of these are the complications of pregnancy. And what we see is that the woman who has had gestational hypertension, who has had diabetes during pregnancy, who's had preeclampsia, whose babies were born earlier than their expected due date and whose babies were smaller than would be expected from their gestational age, all of these are markers of future cardiovascular risk. So these are women that should be identified by the OBGYNs and should work on their conventional risk factors because their risk for hypertension for developing increase in risk factors and for developing cardiovascular disease is greatest in the early years after the pregnancy, very often why these women are still in their reproductive years. It's important to realize that this is not a disease of old ladies, that this is a disease of young women, and that it is a disease that can be ameliorated or even prevented. So we must address risk factors in young women and particularly those that are uncovered by pregnancy. Often I think I've said that pregnancy is probably the first stress test that a woman undergoes, and some of these abnormalities show the women at risk and must be addressed. Also, women who have systemic autoimmune disease, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, etc., are also at risk for cardiovascular disease. And we must cooperate with our rheumatology colleagues to see that their risk factors are addressed. The one with lupus is more likely to die from heart disease than from her lupus. At Women's Heart Center, we have a cardiologist working with the rheumatologist to meet people, to meet the women where they are. We have a cardiologist working in the OB clinic for the women who've had preeclampsia when they come for their six-week follow-up, again, to address their risk factors. So we have to identify unique ways of addressing young women. The other important feature is that women are more likely to have depression and anxiety than men, and depression and anxiety increase the risk more for women than for men, and particularly for young women. So attention to heart health becomes a very important variable as well.
0: Let's say you have a generally healthy person who has preeclampsia, as an example. What would they be able to do? Because it's not one of the main items that's on the checklist that you shared.
1: But I think in in the checklist, what you have to do is to say, post-pregnancy, are you certain that if you were smoking, you've not resumed smoking? Check your cholesterol, is it ideal? And if not, diet, exercise, and if need be medication. What about blood pressure control? Is it optimal? And that's 120 over 80. That's where the blood pressure should be. Weight management, has the baby weight come down? Are you at your ideal body mass? Are you doing optimal recommended levels of physical activity? So all of these become important and of course, checking uh, hemoglobin A1C for diabetes. So for the woman who's had preeclampsia, because she is at increased risk, I do as precise control of risk factors as I do for the woman who already has heart disease.
0: My understanding is the way the metrics for heart attacks are measured for men versus women is different because of the manifestation being different. And so if I'm trying to be proactive about my heart health as a woman. What are the dynamics that I need to be aware of with the way general metrics are done and whether they need to be customized for women to make sure we understand what's actually happening to the woman's body?
1: Well, in in general, we're not doing testing for asymptomatic individuals, but there are probably very few women who have ideal heart health. As a matter of fact, uh, even young women, there are recent data suggesting that women contemplating pregnancy uh, do not have ideal heart health. They're by all of the metrics of the American Heart Association and that women who are pregnant have lower heart health than comparably aged women who are not pregnant so that uh we're not dealing with a healthy population and we have to address the fact that we have our goal is optimal ideal heart health and that that's where we have to go initially and then uh for symptoms the woman who has symptoms certainly uh, has to be evaluated and it is probably important that health professionals realize that women's symptoms may differ from those of men. And I think we need perhaps a cultural reset, because if we define the symptoms of disease as the male model of disease, we're saying that's the norm, that's the gold standard. And if the symptoms in women are different, they're called atypical. Well, they're not atypical. They're typical for women. So we must realize that we have to examine the presentation of women across the lifespan and to be quite aware of these. You know, as I talk to women who've had heart disease and who've had heart attack, and talking to women from Women Heart with the Association of women who are survivors of heart disease, they often say that even when they've had a heart attack, that early on when the EMTs were called, they looked with them at them on an apparently healthy young woman, said, you're not having a heart attack, it must be anxiety, and never even bothered to do the acute testing. And now I think that we have increased the awareness of heart disease in women, and indeed in young women. We see that coming into emergency departments, the woman who comes in with acute symptoms, acute chest pain, acute shortness of breath, uh, that she gets her immediate electrocardiogram, that she gets the tests done promptly. But it is not as ubiquitous as it should be. Because we see that if we ask questions of trainees, medical trainees, cardiology trainees, a number of them do not feel comfortable addressing issues of women's heart health and women's symptoms because they've had limited education about this during their training. And indeed, for practicing clinicians, a sizable number of them on surveys said they feel less sure in managing women with heart disease or in diagnosing women uh, than they do in diagnosing men. So we need lifelong learning because as we learn more about heart disease in women, this has to be transmitted to the clinical care community at all levels of practice.
0: consumer. consumer sector of women's health visit www.femtechconsumerinnovation.com to view the superstar speaker lineup and enter code fempower15 for 15% off your ticket hope to see you there no absolutely and tell me more about how the symptoms manifest differently in women than men, because some of the things you were talking about, from my understanding of the men's symptoms, actually do seem similar. So is it more that people just assume women don't have as many heart attacks, and women are more equated with anxiety and depression and being emotional, and that it's just misguided? Or do the symptoms truly manifest in different ways? Or maybe it's a little bit of both.
1: That's exactly true. It's it's a little bit of both. But you see, more women before they have the heart attack have angina, and that's the pain of myocardial ischemia, of inadequate blood supply to the heart muscle. And angina was classically described as chest pain, an oppressive chest pain. But women's presentation of myocardial ischemia can be shortness of breath, it can be it can be pain, not just in the chest, but in the jaw, in the arm, even going to the abdomen. And I tell my colleagues in the emergency room that any acute onset of symptoms from the jaw to the mid abdomen must be considered myocardial ischemia until it's ruled out. And remember, uh, I'd like to say simplistically, Men are noun, verb, people, and women are adjective, adverb people. So the, the man will come into the emergency room and say, I'm having a heart attack. Uh, the woman will come in and describe all of the symptoms that may be shortness of breath, dizziness, headache, fatigue, anxiety, and chest pain. But often the chest pain is lost in that recitation. And... I think we have to learn to listen to our patients. And, you know, I expect the reason that we have data actually in the literature that patients arbitrarily assigned to women compared to men, clinicians do better in the emergency department and indeed in the intensive care unit, and that's published data, is that women know how to listen. And we learn so much about listening to our patients, about not interrupting them, and they will tell us a great deal about their illness. So I think the reason that women tend to be superior clinicians is that they listen better.
0: Then if I were having a suspected heart attack and I do get testing, My understanding is that the EKGs aren't set properly for women. So can you tell us more about the status of that?
1: No, 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 no. The electrocardiogram is is just the same for women and for men. Uh, Some of the numbers have a slight variation, but the identification of electrocardiographic abnormalities of myocardial infarction is the same for women and for men. The important thing is that it be done promptly rather than delayed. Got it. And, and then that the other tests that are done in the emergency department, the enzyme tests, be done. And that the women who have an abnormal electrocardiogram cardiogram uh, receive the appropriate guideline-directed medications and testing.
0: So let's assume I'm a woman and I believe I'm having a heart attack. What if I don't feel like I'm being believed? What What should I do?
1: If they are aware of their risk of heart disease, if they're aware of the symptoms and they think they're having a heart attack, they have to advocate for themselves and say, I'm having chest pain, or I'm having severe shortness of breath, or I feel very sick. And if I'm not having a heart attack, what is going on? And that they don't want to be told it's all in your head, Uh, go home and relax, my dear, there is not a problem. Or uh, maybe this is gastrointestinal reflux, make an appointment with your gastroenterologist. Uh, Now, it may be something else because not all chest pain is heart attack. And as a matter of fact, in the emergency room, there is a huge amount of pain that is not heart attack. The new chest pain guidelines that came out are encouraging physicians to not use the term atypical chest pain, because it may be typical for women, but then what the clinician has to do is to say, is this cardiac or non-cardiac? If it's non-cardiac chest pain, well, what is causing it, and let us evaluate that. If it's cardiac, is it due to coronary disease, or is it due to pericarditis, or pulmonary embolism, what, what is it due to? So there, there is an algorithm that has to be followed. And the woman coming in with acute symptoms deserves to have her symptoms addressed to advocate for herself.
0: So you mentioned that we're in a bit of a decline with awareness. Tell us more about that. Why is that happening in your view?
1: I'm really not sure why that's happening. I expect that this, this started actually pre-pandemic, so we can't blame the pandemic for it, although it certainly accelerated both for women and for men during the pandemic. But we had for a number of years education in the schools. We had heart health education in the young. That has not been part of our education of children about their heart. We began to teach about high blood pressure to children. And there was a program a number of years ago where children were given blood pressure cuffs and stethoscopes taught to check blood pressure and went back home and conveyed that to their parents. We have not emphasized the detection and management of hypertension. And of course, hypertension is a leading cause of heart failure. What we're seeing is inadequate attention to heart health. And perhaps in women, even though they see their physicians more often for high blood pressure than men, they're started on medication, but they're often not titrated appropriately or more rapidly. The same thing with cholesterol, the titration among women to get to an optimal drug dosage that gives them the ideal level of cholesterol or the ideal level of blood pressure may not be as prompt as it should be. So again, some of it relates to the medical care system. It relates to the awareness of the provider. It relates to the awareness of women. And much of this relates to the awareness in the community. You know, women's social support system is very different from that for men. And sadly, when it comes to heart disease, the social support system does not kick in as appropriately for women. If a woman develops chest pain in the office when she's working, she'll be told, oh, call your doctor and make an appointment. The man who develops chest pain, someone calls 911. The same thing in the community. When the woman has chest pain, her family, who is in her social support system, her friends say, Well, maybe you should see the doctor about it rather than saying, if this is acute, call 911. And of course, many women are concerned that this might be a false alarm because they see so many people being told they did not respond appropriately to symptoms or had excessive symptoms. I would much rather see the woman come to the emergency room and someone say, it's not a heart attack than to have the heart attack in the community and all of the complications that are associated with late recognition. Don't be ashamed to respond to your symptoms and to advocate for yourself.
0: I'm glad you're saying this. I think back to when I was pregnant, my son was such a quiet baby. I was never really able to get those videos of him bouncing around in my tummy and there were times where he was just so quiet, and they did say at a certain point in your pregnancy, if the baby's not moving for a certain period of time, you do need to come to the hospital. And I recall twice having to go, and both times they were false alarms. And I do recall feeling incredibly guilty. And the clinicians had said, no, 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 you need to come in because we'd rather you come in and it'd be a false alarm repeatedly than to not come in and it'd be the one time that something is actually wrong. So thank you so much for reiterating this because it is such an important point. You know, just thinking about this, I'm wondering if the societal piece with women is just the nature of how we women operate plus the misunderstanding of heart health in women. You know, I think, I mean, I'm oversimplifying this a bit, but I think about job applications. The data shows how men will see a job, and even if they barely meet the qualifications, they'll say, oh, yes, I can definitely do this job. I'm applying. And the woman will look at the uh, job description and overanalyze and think she wouldn't be able to deliver on a few of the bullet points, and then say, nope, I'm not applying. We have so much to change in our culture. And remembering that we're powerful, strong women, and we shouldn't hide just because of how society has defined who we are and, and what we should be. I mean, granted, it's changing, but but wouldn't you agree? Well,
1: we have to teach women to value themselves. Yeah. Remember that women are really the controllers, if you will, or the determinants of the heart health of the family. Often they do very well for the heart health of their family, but not their personal heart health. And the heart health of the family translates into the heart health of the community and the heart health of the nation. So that women play very important roles, but often with this, their personal heart health is denigrated.
0: Now, back to the titration of medications. I wanted to get clarification on this because I recently read an article, and it's something that we've known for a while, but the article just triggered this thought, is that clinical trials aren't really designed for women, especially when they're looking at medications. Um, You know, we know that some need to be taken at different dosages or possibly even titrated in different ways. And so is the reason why women aren't necessarily titrated properly, is it because they um, have a different dosage schedule than men and people aren't aware of it? Or is there something else going on?
1: We really don't know because remember that the studies that established the role of these medications in our clinical practice were done predominantly in men and were done predominantly in middle-aged white men. And those are the recommended dosage. They're the dosages in the guidelines. But remember that we have ways of measuring whether those dosages are appropriate. For the blood pressure, does this dosage reduce the blood pressure to the level recommended, 120 over 80 millimeters of mercury? Is the cholesterol reduced to the level that is recommended? Is the hemoglobin A1C normal for the diabetic medications. And the woman should be able to ask the physician about her heart health. What is heart healthy for me? What are the numbers that are my goals? And what are we doing to address those? Because the woman who knows what her goal, blood pressure is her goal, hemoglobin A1C, her goal, LDL cholesterol will then be able to see, is the medication she's taking adequate? You know, very often we don't start at the highest dose of the medication because we there's individual tolerance and we have to titrate to the appropriate goal. And the woman should ask, when do we measure this the next time? You know, blood pressure medication uh, can be assessed essentially by the woman. We can get blood pressure cuffs and the woman with hypertension should be measuring her blood pressure regularly.
0: Could one ever be over-medicated? So, for example, a woman is um, being proactive about her body. She's looking at her blood results and monitoring her blood pressure. Um, would she ever be able to like go to her doctor and say, I have concerns. I think my dose needs to be decreased or um, this seems to be too high of a dose. What should, should she do or how does this work?
1: Essentially, the discussion should happen in the office. We are starting this medicine with this goal, and this is what will happen. If the goal isn't achieved, then we will increase the dose of medicine or perhaps add a second medication. Uh, if you have symptoms, let me know right away rather than just stopping the medicine so that we can appropriately titrate it. The medication. Control is an N of 1, so that each patient is different. We have guidelines for where we want the general control to be. But every patient must be treated as an individual. And the discussion should happen as to why are we doing all of this? Why are we emphasizing smoking, cessation, blood pressure control, diabetes control, weight management, etc.? And that is because your heart health is the major determinant of how well you will do in the long term. And it should be measured across the lifespan.
0: So where are we with the education of health care providers?
1: We've just begun the journey. And the fact that we discussed earlier on that many trainees and many practicing clinicians feel uncomfortable shows us that we have to increase the information for lifelong learning and that's available at most national meetings and we find that there are more and more sessions on women and heart disease in the OBgyn community in the primary care community in the internal medicine and the cardiology community and that is essentially the village that takes care of the woman but don't have all the information we need. There are knowledge gaps and there are gaps in access to information. And I think there are really a number of features that need to be done. And we've addressed these uh, in the presidential advisory. First, obviously, is to increase awareness. And uh, it is community education. It is just everything that we have to do to teach the patients about their heart health. We have to have prevention initiatives. What is it that we can do to prevent the heart disease? And then we have to optimize the prevention and clinical care. We have to be sure that women are insured, that they have access to optimal care. And again, we find that women often decrease their medical attention because they're paying out-of-pocket costs. We have to see that they're insured. In a survey of women, some women said they were spending about $2,000 out-of-pocket for their health care costs. Now, preventive interventions should be covered by insurance, but we have to see that the women are insured, and we have to see the access to insurance for young women. Mainly we have to support research and there are abundant data now that investment in research on women's heart health has an enormous financial return in terms of the health of the population and the ability of women to contribute to the good of the nation. But then what we have to do is to engage communities. There should be school-based program. There should be community-based program. What has been particularly beneficial have been the faith-based initiatives because many of the faith-based centers have essentially health ministries. And these are trusted individuals in the community who can convey information that is trusted by people who are our patients. Then we need advocacy. We need advocacy of women for themselves. We need advocacy, uh, importantly, for the social determinants of health. We have learned this abundantly during the COVID pandemic. And we realize that there are food deserts, that we're telling the women to eat healthy. Do they have access to fresh fruits and vegetables? We're telling women to exercise. Are there areas where they can exercise safely? So the social determinants of health are very important. And these this means that we have to go outside of the medical community. I've said often that women's heart health is not solely a medical issue because there are issues that involve public policy, they involve legislation, et cetera. And then what we have to do over time is to monitor our progress, to do health surveillance, to say, do these initiatives that we're starting achieve the goals that are necessary. And this involves a great deal of communication among communities and community-based organizations, among public policy. Now, again, we are in an election season. And we should be asking the people that we elect, what are their positions on heart health? What are their positions on health insurance? What are their positions on access to healthy areas? What are they doing about the social determinants of health? This is the way we advocate for ourselves. I think many of you have heard me say, at many platforms and I think that there are four steps. The first is investigate, do the research, get the data. The next is educate, educate women, educate the communities, educate the health providers, then advocate. And we've talked a great deal during this podcast about advocacy. But the last one is legislate. And what we must do is legislate for heart health, legislate for research related to women, and legislate for appropriate health care for women and access to that health care. And that health care must be quality health care because that is the only way we can assure equity in heart health for women.
0: It sounds like we're making great progress and have a lot of baseline knowledge, but it sounds like we also have a long ways to go. Is that correct?
1: Absolutely. Because every time we identify a new problem, then we have to investigate its solutions. And every time we find solutions, we say, are there better solutions? So that research is absolutely key. There are so many knowledge gaps
0: in terms of
1: what is the optimal prevention? What is the optimal diagnostic testing? What are the intervals? What are the tests that have to be done? What are the optimal modes of therapy? And of course, what we have to do is to say, is there equity in outcomes? Now the care does not have to be the same for women and for men, but the goal is to have the same favorable outcomes, and we need to improve the outcomes both for women and
0: for men. One of the things I also find interesting, because we haven't yet spoken about um, access, meaning the insurance providers, is paying for and reimbursement of you know, treating heart health And I'd interviewed ACOG, which is the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists last summer, and they made an amazing update to their guidelines where instead of waiting until six weeks after birth for you to go see your doctor after having the baby they now recommend going three to four weeks after and they did say a phone visit is fine but one of the questions i had asked was okay so now that you have these guidelines what are the insurance providers doing and do the doctors have capacity for these additional visits and unfortunately the rest of this great guideline hadn't been thought out and You know, we've now created this capacity issue. So, do you see this risk with payers being a little bit behind for even those who are fortunate enough to have health insurance and reimbursement for being proactive?
1: Well, this this is some of the advocacy. And I will tell you for uh, the state of Georgia, in terms of some of the OD care. We have made major advances, and that is by working with our legislators. We now have, for the women who have government insurance, who have Medicaid, that they are now covered for a year after they deliver for follow-up care. And uh, in general, what the government insurance does, the private insurers will follow. So it is really very exciting that remember I work in a public institution. I work in uh, essentially with a challenged community in terms of, of health insurance. So most of my patients are Medicaid, Medicare patients. And it is very important that we see that there is adequate coverage, that there is not need for pre authorization, which delays care and that we see that patients have the ideal access to the guideline-directed medical therapy. In cardiology, we have a number of guidelines. They're quite good. They help us. But the guideline-directed medical therapy should be available by the insurers. And again, some of the issue is going to relate to cost.
0: We've covered so much about heart health. Is there... Anything else that you wanted to share that I may not have officially asked about, but we should discuss?
1: Probably the emphasis that I would like to leave with our listeners is that the heart health of women is often the determinant of the heart health of the community and the heart health of the nation. So that women must value themselves, must value their heart health, must advocate for themselves because they cannot do for their family and their community and their nation what they do not do for themselves. So women, go for it.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Wenger, for making time and sharing your wisdom and expertise. It has been a true honor and just wow. Um, everything that you shared, I want to write your entire bio into the show notes because it is quite impressive. And I know that the AHA is lucky to have you.
1: Well, I very much enjoy this. Your questions were just on target and helped us to educate women and their care providers. Thank you again.
0: Thank you for joining us on another enlightening episode of FemPower Health. No matter where you are in your journey, our website is brimming with content tailored to your specific topic of interest or life stage. Dive in and discover the resources and insights waiting for you. Your voice matters to us. And if you found value in this episode, please take a moment to write a review. Your feedback not only helps us improve, but it also helps others discover our podcast by spreading the word, your information empowering women everywhere with the information they need to navigate their unique health journeys. And if this episode resonated with you, please don't keep it a secret, share it with friends, loved ones, or anyone you believe would benefit from the information. Together, we can create a world where every woman feels supported, informed, and empowered. Remember, knowledge is power, and FemPower Health is here to guide you and support you in every step of the way. And as a reminder, the information shared by FemPower Health is not medical advice, but for informational purposes to enable you to have more effective conversations with your doctor. Always talk to your doctor before making health related decisions. Additionally, the views expressed by the FemPower Health podcast guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Until next time.